If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of John. We're going to be in the Gospel of John today. We're going to take a break this week from the book of James because, as we've already mentioned, this week is Orphan Sunday. Um, if you're not familiar with Orphan Sunday, that's okay. It's kind of a new movement. Uh, it's been around for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years or so as far as just na- being nationally recognized. Uh, but it, it's, it's a Sunday, usually the first or second Sunday in November, where churches all over the, the country or really all over the world now um, choose to just really emphasize and preach and teach on orphan care, uh, just to build awareness of kind of the orphan crisis throughout the world and really seek to motivate Christians to get involved somehow. And so this week is Orphan Sunday, so we're going to just spend some time today thinking about um, what it means to care for the fatherless, to care for orphans from the book of John chapter 14. Daniger mentioned some statistics earlier. I'm going to mention some too. These are going to be a little bit different. It just depends on where you go for your statistics and how updated they are. From what I could find, there are about 153 million orphan children in our world today. Less than 250,000 of them will be adopted into permanent homes. So that's less than 1% of all orphan children will experience the permanence of adoption during their childhood years. 48 million of these orphaned and vulnerable children can be found in sub-Saharan Africa. 31 million can be found in East Asia and the Pacific, 6 million in the Middle East, 9.4 million in Latin America and the Caribbean, 1.5 million live in public care in Central and Eastern Europe. That's our world, but what about the U.S.? There's more than 800,000 children that pass through our country's foster care system each year. There's about 500,000 in our foster care system right now. 129,000 of those are available and waiting to be adopted right now. That's our country, but what about our state? In Illinois, there's about 18,000 children living in out-of-home care. That means they could be living with foster parents, relatives, or institutionalized group homes. Most of these children are currently waiting to be adopted, and the reality is most of them never will be. Now, We've probably all heard statistics like this. It makes sense that since today is Orphan Sunday, I'm preaching a message on orphan care and adoption that I would overwhelm us all with really sad statistics and children across the world, about children across the world who are living as orphans. But the reason I begin this way is not to make us feel guilty or lead us to despair. The reason I share those kinds of numbers really is, is twofold today. First, because I want to astound you with the truth of the gospel. I want you to feel the weight of your own helplessness in your own condition, the condition you are in apart from the rescuing grace of God. You were an orphan at one time. And I want us to fall to our knees in worship and adoration because we have been rescued. But the other reason I read those statistics is because I want us to understand something about our world. The world we live in hates children. Now, what I mean by that is the spirit of the age, the demonic forces, what John calls the world in the gospel of John, hates children. Satan hates children. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, they sinned against him. 
They thought they knew what was best for themselves, and so they rejected God and His will for them, and they sought to live their lives without Him. But this led to death and separation, and God removed them from the Garden of Eden. But in the midst of God's judgment, in Genesis 3.15, we're told that there will be enmity, a conflict between the seed of the woman and the, and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will bruise his heel. There will be this conflict, this battle, this violence between the children of Eve and the children of the evil one. And this conflict is being played out still in our own day. We see this war being raged all around us in our culture. Just in our own country, in the, in the lives that, that we lead, we are constantly fed lies about children. What are some of these lies that we hear? One of them, children are to be avoided at all costs. To become pregnant when you don't want to become pregnant is considered a grave injustice. Therefore, any and all means that we can take to prevent or terminate pregnancy must be open and available to anyone who wants them. And not only should these options be available, they should be available free of charge, we are told. So we live in a country where all men are created equal and entitled to life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness, that is, unless those men and women are actually little boys and girls who are unwanted. Then it's not only okay to kill them, it's actually considered progress. Or maybe we've heard something like this, that many children... Um, you know, even, even in, the, in the statistics that I've read, they were never really wanted by their parents. They become a nuisance. They get in the way of whatever their parents desire, whatever, whether that be freedom or drugs or alcohol or some other addiction. We don't even have to look at these extreme horrific examples. Just think about the way children are talked about, even in our middle-class mindsets. The raising of children is sometimes considered to be an unnecessary burden, something that must take a back seat to my career or my personal life goals. It comes across even the way we talk about children sometimes. Yeah, we, we want children. We just want to wait until this certain undetermined point in our lives. Or we want to wait until we're ready. Or we want to enjoy our marriage before we start having kids. Or we just don't want to be burdened with them right now. Sometimes children are portrayed as an accessory to our lives like a coach handbag or a set of diamond earrings, something to be toted alongside me because they're cute and they bring attention to me. There's something to be used for my personal benefit. Or perhaps children become the vehicle for all of our hopes and dreams. We want them to succeed so badly. We'll cut corners for them, excuse their faults, cover for their mistakes, shield them from criticism, all because we want them to succeed, not for their own good, but for our glory. Our identity becomes so wrapped up in our children that when they are doing great things, we feel like we are doing great things. But when they fail, we feel like we have failed too. This too is a way that parents can mistreat their children. They become little people that we can use rather than love and sacrifice for, for the glory of God. Russell Moore, if you know him, he, he's written a lot about adoption and orphan care the, over the last several years. He, he writes this, the demonic rulers of the age hate orphans because they hate babies. 
And they have from Pharaoh to Molech to Herod and to the divorce culture. They hate foster care and orphan advocacy because these actions are icons of the gospel's eternal reality. Our enemies would prefer that we find our identity and inheritance in what we can see and verify as ours, the flesh, rather than according to the rhythms of the Spirit. Orphan care isn't charity, he says. It's spiritual warfare. Yes, sometimes children are avoided. Sometimes they're murdered. Sometimes children are used. Either way, many children are rarely truly loved. And that war that began in the gate of the Garden of Eden continues today. But today I want us to see from John 14 that because we have a heavenly Father who cares for us, we are called to care for the fatherless. Because we have a heavenly Father who cares for us, we are called to care for the fatherless. Let's read starting in John 14, verse 1. We're going to read to verse 24. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, 
but the fathers who sent me. The first thing I want us to see in this passage is the fatherly care of Christ. The fatherly care of Christ. When we come to John chapter 14, we have to understand what's happening in the life of Jesus and his disciples. They've just completed the Last Supper. In chapter 13, Jesus identifies Judas as the one who would betray him. That's Judas Iscariot. And he sends him out to fulfill his task. He says, go. Go do it, Judas. He knows what he's going to do. After Judas leaves, Jesus begins to explain to the rest of the disciples that he is about to leave them. He's about to be crucified. They don't understand that, but that's what he's trying to tell them. In chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus addresses the disciples as little children. And we're going to see that Jesus did not use that term by accident. It's only used to describe the disciples here in John's gospel, which makes it significant. Jesus considered the disciples to be his own children. He has taken responsibility for them over the past three years, and we're told that he loved them to the end. When we get to chapter 14, Jesus gets even more explicit with his fatherly language. He tells them that he will soon be going to his father. He's going there to prepare a place for them. When he does, he'll come back for them so that where he is, they can be with him also. Thomas questions Jesus by asking, you're saying that we will be with you, but how do we know how to get there? How do we know the way? Jesus replies with his famous words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Thomas begs, Lord, show us the Father. You keep talking about this Father. We want to see the Father. We want to see God. Jesus replies, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, because I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So Jesus clearly considers the disciples to be his own children under his care, but he's also directing their minds and their hearts toward his own heavenly Father. This relationship of Jesus to his Father is so close, and the ministry of the Father and the ministry of Jesus is so intertwined that Jesus tells his disciples that whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus wants his disciples to know that when they ask something in his name, he answers their prayers so that the Father might be glorified. In Jesus, we have access to God, to the Father. This idea is going to become more important as we go on. In verse 15, chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus makes a crucial move. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This was a bold statement. Jesus was essentially putting himself in the place of the Old Testament God of Israel. His statement about keeping commandments would have triggered Old Testament teaching in the minds of his disciples. In Deuteronomy 7, God tells Israel, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. When Jesus tells His disciples that they prove their love for Him by keeping His commandments, Jesus is even more explicitly equating Himself and His ministry with that of the Father. In verse 16 and 17, Jesus tells them that He's going to send them another helper to be with them forever. This helper is the Holy Spirit. In chapter 16, Jesus is going to explain more about who the Holy Spirit is, what kind of work He will do. 
But here we are told that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because the world does not see Him or know Him, but the disciples know Him because He has been with them and will be in them. Now, that's a lot of backgrounds, a lot of context. But what is Jesus telling His disciples here? Jesus is giving them comfort because what is about to transpire is going to shake their faith to the core. He knows he's about to be betrayed and crucified. Judas is gone. He's going to do his his betrayal. He's doing it right now, and Jesus is about to be crucified. He knows the disciples are about to abandon him. He knows that Peter is about to deny him, but he wants them to know that he will be sending the Holy Spirit to help them. He's being a good father. He knows the dangers and the fears and the anxiety that his children are about to experience, and he wants them to be comforted in the midst of it. Jesus treated his disciples like his own children, not in a pandering, condescending way, but in a caring, life-preserving way. Psalm 103 tells us that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Charles Spurgeon, when he writes about this passage, he writes this, in the absence of our Lord Jesus Christ, the disciples were like children deprived of their parents. During the three years in which he had been with them, he had solved all their difficulties, borne all their burdens, and supplied all their needs. Whenever a case was too hard or too heavy for them, they took it to him. When their enemies well nigh overcame them, Jesus came to their rescue and turned the tide of battle. They were all happy and safe enough while the master was with them. He walked in their midst like a father amid a large family of children, making all the household glad. But now he was about to be taken from them by a humiliating death. And they might well feel that they could be like little children, deprived of their natural and beloved protector. Our Savior knew the fear that was in their hearts. And before they could express it, he removed it by saying, You shall not be left alone in this wild and deserted world. Jesus remembered that his disciples were dust. He knew they were weak and frail, and they had weak faith. So he was doing what every good father does. He's preparing them for his departure. This is something that we do with our own children, right? When a big change is about to take place in their lives, we don't just throw them in and let them figure it out. We try to talk with them beforehand to prepare them for it. When Kelly and I were considering foster care, and as we were going through the classes, all the training, we talked with our children many times about it. We tried to explain that there would be other children who might come and live with us for a while because it wouldn't be safe for them to stay in their homes. We tried to help them understand that this is a way that we can serve the Lord, that we can care for other children in our town because God cares for us. We helped them catch a vision for orphan care even as they were children. So when it came time to actually care for other children in our home, they were more prepared. It's always going to be a bit of a shock, but you do the best you can. But haven't we experienced this in our own walk with the Lord as well? 
I mean, have you ever had an experience, maybe some trial or hardship as you walk, and as you walk through it, you think back on your life and you're able to pinpoint specific ways the Lord has prepared you for that? Maybe it was just a conversation you had with someone years ago. Maybe it was a sermon you heard, maybe just the previous Sunday. Or maybe it was a previous trial that you went through. It could be a hundred different things. But when we are on the other side, we're able to look back and see how God has prepared and equipped us to persevere through it. See, the point is, our Heavenly Father is a perfect Father. Just like Jesus prepared His disciples for His departure, so our Father prepares us for any difficulty. And this is very important for us today, especially if you're here and you're considering adoption or foster care. I have no doubt that the single biggest reason why Christian couples hesitate or are reluctant to get involved in orphan care by adopting or foster care is fear. It's fear. We're afraid of what might happen. I know this because this was the case for me. I was afraid about how hard my life might become. What if we got a child, if we decided to do foster care? I mean, for years, Kelly and I wanted to adopt. We just assumed that we would adopt internationally, and then we kind of looked at at domestic adoption in the States, and then we kind of were like, well, you know, that became less possible, and then we were like, okay, well, what about foster care? And at first, I was like, nope, foster care, that's for other people to do, that's not for me. Here we are, four years in, foster care. But why was that? Why was I thinking like that? Because I had all these fears, What if we got a child who was not what we expected? What if he or she ended up with trauma or special needs that we didn't know about? Or what if the financial burden was too much for us? Or what if we couldn't care for them well and we had to give them up? Or when I'm really honest, my fears are actually way more self-centered than that. The fact is, I'm an idolater. I've constructed a dozen idols in my heart and more, and when I'm honest with myself, what I really want is to protect and guard those idols at all costs. So, when it looks like orphan care is going to threaten those things that I hold dear, I get afraid. I hesitate. For example, this is some personal confession, personal testimony from our own journey in foster care, but... I have an idol of comfort. What comforts and pleasures am I going to have to give up to do this? I love my comfort. I love my clean house and my quiet nights and my kids who sleep through the night. I love being left alone to read and work on sermons. I love watching what I want to watch on TV and eating what I want to eat without interruption. I want to go to sleep and wake up when it's comfortable for me. But God has been exposing this idol over and over with His truth. First, He's helped me to see that there will be plenty of time for comfort and rest in the new heaven, in the new earth. I look forward to that day. But now is a time to be on mission. And second, He's helped me understand in, a more, ta- in more tangible ways that my life is not about making myself more comfortable 
but about pouring my life out so that others can experience his love. And I don't say this because I have arrived here. I say this because this is what the Lord has been teaching me, and I'm a slow learner. If you get involved in adoption or foster care, it will make you uncomfortable. You will have children in your home, and you'll begin to think that you have made a mistake. What have I done? You will wish you had not said yes. There will be drool and disobedience and months of potty training and every bodily fluid and demonic temper tantrums and bed bugs and head lice and seizures. We've had it all. And it's all worth it. Because in the midst of it is an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And after all, was it not Jesus who left the glory of heaven to enter into our sinful world and to give his life for us? As Philippians 2 reminds us, he did not count his life did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. But my idol of comfort, <laughs> that's the first one I mentioned because it's the biggest, but it's just the beginning. What about my idol of having my own children? I've heard people over the years say things like, I just don't know if I could do adoption or foster care because I, I don't know if I would love them like I would love my own children. And deep down when I would hear that, I would pridefully scoff at how sinful and selfish that sounded and how selfish those people were, and that is until we got our first placement. Now I see that I have the exact same thoughts. They were just being more honest about it than I was. I am actually the sinful, selfish one. Over and over, I have struggled to love children that I don't consider my own. But God is helping me to see that my biological children, they're not my children anyway. Just like everything else I have, they belong to God. He has entrusted them to me to be managed and stewarded for His glory, but their lives and their hearts belong to Him. And second, when it comes to my relationship with my heavenly Father, I am the adopted one. I am the one who doesn't belong. I am the one who has rebelled and spit in his face, and I have no right to be called his child. And yet, for no other reason but his free sovereign grace, he set his love on me, called me his own. I am not his own, but he makes me his own. What about my idol of having cute children? This is the idolatry that the Lord has been revealing to me a lot recently, something that I was too proud to admit at first. But here it is in all of its ugliness. I want cute kids. I don't want ugly children. I don't want to be the dad with the special needs kid. I don't want to be the dad with the kid who has the deformity or the gross medical problem or the baby out of wedlock or the seizures or whatever. No, I want the beautiful kids, right? I want the family photos that look clean and put together on Instagram and everyone's happy in their white shirts and their khaki pants on the beach. I want all the recognition and all the glory for having a beautiful family, but I don't want any of the mess. This is what I want. 
This is my heart. So often. But God's had different plans. Instead of giving me what I wanted, He's helped me change my definition of beauty. Beauty is being created in the image of God. Beauty is loving those the world says is unlo- are unlovable. Beauty is a steadfast commitment to the good of someone else, expecting nothing in return. And beauty often leaves the world speechless and confused. Having cute kids is temporary, temporarily significant, but putting the gospel on display is eternally significant. And again, who am I? to put such expectations upon God when I am the ugly one. I am the despicable one, the one who has willingly chosen mud pies in the slums over the goodness of my Creator. And still God chooses to love me. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. That's what matters. Church, no matter what fears you might have, please know that our Heavenly Father will prepare you and equip you to do what He calls you to do, whether that's orphan care, foster care, adoption, church planting, pastoring, missionary, whatever He is calling you to do. The job that you have now Any difficult circumstance you have, anything that you are going through, the Lord will give you what you need when you need it. It's because He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, and He will sustain us through it just as He was doing to the disciples in John 14. And in the end, it will all be worth it. Especially when we consider my second point, which is the desperate condition of the orphan. In verse 18, Jesus tells His disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Now, why does Jesus use the term orphan here? It's the only time this word is used in John's gospel. This word can also mean desolate or deserted or comfortless. There must be a reason why Jesus chose this word rather than another. What is it about Jesus leaving that would cause the disciples to become desolate or deserted or fatherless? Now, think about what the disciples' lives have been like through the ministry of Christ. As we read through the Gospels, we get this mental image that the disciples really are following Jesus around like lost little puppies. They really are like little children in so many ways. They misunderstand and misapply Jesus' words all over the place. Jesus explicitly tells them that He is going to die and be raised from the dead at least three times before it happens, but they still don't understand. He tells them flat out, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're like, what is He talking about? We don't understand. They see Jesus perform miracle after miracle and sign after sign, and they still question His identity. After He feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, they feared for their lives when Jesus came walking out to them on the water. 
Mark tells us that they were astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were actually hardened. They tremble in fear of storms and demons and men who would seek to persecute them. After Jesus calms the storm, He says, "'Why are you so afraid?' Have you still no faith? They fight among themselves about who will be the greatest, who will get to sit at Jesus' side in heaven. They overreach and mishandle the authority that Christ does entrust to them. Jesus, we saw a guy casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. And Jesus replies, don't stop him. If anyone is not against us, he's for us. And after this, the three disciples closest to Jesus will fall asleep at the moment Christ needs them the most. And then Peter will deny him on his way to the cross. They really were like little children. I mean, think about how lost the disciples were about to feel. Think about how much their lives were about to change with the crucifixion of Christ. They had just dedicated the past three years of their lives to following this man. They sought to please him. They looked to him for food, for comfort, for safety and security. He was their father. Without them, they will be in a desperate condition. I've seen this kind of fear and anxiety overtake my own children a few times. We've maybe had these these experiences if you're a parent, or maybe even as a child if you remember. I remember having these experiences as as a kid as well. There's times in a crowd of people when, when one of my kids will look up and they realize that the person that they're standing next to the person they thought was daddy or mommy is actually a total stranger. You know, they're like, they think they're standing next to you and they look up and it's like, okay, this, I don't know who this person is. Um, and you can, I've seen this happen kind of from a, from a distance and when they realize it, you can just kind of see the panic set in, especially if you're somewhere in public, like, oh no, where am I? Where's mom? Where's dad? You can see it in their eyes and they're frantically searching for a familiar face. Or those times when our kids were younger at Target And they get distracted by looking at toys and then realize that mom and dad have moved on to the next aisle. And and we hear them frantically calling out for us. And I find Nella, when she's much younger, she comes to us in the next aisle. She's got tears in her eyes. You know, what's wrong, Nella? She's, I couldn't find you. I was looking for you. See, children, as much as they pretend like they are adults, Especially when they're young, they're helpless without their parents. And yet, this is the situation 153 million children face every single day. Most of them live in extreme poverty, in sickness and starvation. Most of them live in third world countries and will grow up without ever hearing the gospel. And most of those in our own country will never be adopted because of their age or disability. Every day they question if anyone will love them like a mother or father. They will deal with questions about their identity their entire lives. Many of them will fall into addiction or criminal behavior because they've not grown up with examples of faithful love or service. The orphan, we have to realize this, is in a desperate condition. As we reflect on the plight of the orphan around the world, let's also remember That apart from Christ, we are all in such a condition, the same spiritual condition. Apart from Christ, we are all spiritual orphans. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? 
He's saying, I'm about to go away. I'm about to die, but don't worry. I will not leave you as orphans. He knows what the disciples are about to feel. We don't have to put ourselves in the shoes of the orphan because at one point in our lives, we too were spiritual orphans. Do you remember? If you don't believe, then maybe you haven't thought very much about your life before coming to Christ. I know this is true for me. I remember what it was like. I can't remember a whole lot of my childhood, like growing up, but I remember kind of junior high and high school. And I remember during those times, before coming to Christ, when I lived in just constant fear and anxiety about what other people thought of me. I remember the drastic steps I took, the stupid decisions I made, the hurtful things I said so that others would think that I was cool or accepted. I remember how my heart and mind were filled with lust and covetousness. I remember how small, momentary pleasures used to rule my thinking. I remember how disrespectful I was to my parents and teachers, how I rejected their advice and their authority and tried to carve out my own way because I thought I knew better. I remember that kind of thinking leading to guilt and despair. I remember how lost I was, how helpless scared I was. I don't have to make that stuff up. I don't have to pretend like that happened because that did happen. That was me. I had wonderful godly parents, but I was a spiritual orphan. I was hopeless and helpless and without Christ. And so were you. And maybe you still are. But Jesus promised the disciples and he promises us that he will not leave us as orphans. He will come to us. And what does he mean when he says he will come to them? To get an answer, we have to read on. Verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. See, Jesus is about to die. When he dies, the world will not see him anymore. But after he is raised, his disciples will see him. He's going to show himself to the disciples. He's going to eat with them and talk with them and walk with them and then ascend to the Father. And he's telling them this beforehand to prepare them for it. In verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So here again, Jesus is using this unity language. He's saying that after his resurrection, you will finally believe all the things I'm telling you. And when you finally believe my words, you will be in me and I will be in you. And then, by implication, you will be in the Father. In verse 21, he completes the thought, whoever has my commandment and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Did you hear the promise of Christ in that verse? Those that love Christ will be loved by the Father. The reason Jesus promises not to leave the disciples as orphans is because he knows he is coming back for them. When he is raised from the dead and he makes himself known to them, he knows they will believe in him. And when they believe in him, they will be united to him and be where he is with his Father. So the fulfillment of the, pro- of the promise is adoption. They will be adopted. His Father will be their Father. The love that the Father has for Christ will be the love that they share in in the Father. 
the inheritance that belongs to Christ will become their inheritance, and the spirit that belongs to Christ will belong to them. So what does it mean for Jesus to come back to His disciples? It means that because of the resurrection, the work of Christ is finished, and the atonement for His people is complete, and those whom God has foreknown and predestined for adoption will finally have a father. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans 8 when he says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I don't know what kind of home you grew up in. Maybe like me, you had great godly parents who cared for you and nurtured you and provided everything you needed. If so, praise God today for that blessing. I'm so thankful for my parents. I love my mom and dad more today than I ever have. But you also know that having wonderful, loving parents cannot provide the comfort that comes from a personal relationship with Christ Himself. There will eventually come a time when a child's faith must become his or her own. Many times, growing up in a Christian home results in actually more hidden and secret sins. When we grow up in church, we we repeatedly suppress the knowledge of God rather than confessing and repenting, and it actually results in greater brokenness and more alienation from Christ. If that's you, then please hear the words of Christ. You are not alone. He says to you today, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. Or maybe some of you come from homes that were broken. Maybe some of you have experienced abuse and neglect. Maybe some of you have been hiding scars of those experiences for years, afraid to let anyone into your past. Maybe you're ashamed and you feel responsible for what has happened. Maybe you felt like an orphan your entire life. To hear Christ saying to you today, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. Even though you may have been hurt or abandoned by your earthly father, you have a true Father in heaven who is calling out to you today to come to him, to lay down the guilt and burdens of your past, and to flee to the one who is able to make you whole, to bring healing and restoration to your soul. Jesus himself says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to Christ today. He will never leave you. So what does this mean for how we care for orphans? Well, it means several things, more than what I'm even going to talk about now. But first is, it's my desire that we would be a church that embraces orphan care not as a ministry program, but as an established culture in Redeemer Church. My desire is that we would be a church of families dedicated to caring for orphans in our community and around the world. This should not be an add-on to all the other things we do. It should flow naturally out of our love for the gospel and our love for those who don't know Christ. 
we must remind ourselves that we were all once orphans. We were helpless and comfortless. We were the smelly, dirty, unwanted uh, enemies of God, and in fact, we hated God. But God in His loving kindness chose us for adoption. He sent Christ to make atonement for our sin, and when Christ was raised from the dead, He did that so that we might live with Him, and we are now united with Him through adoption. If those truths don't drive us to care for orphans, nothing will. The church that cares for orphans must first care about the gospel. Second, I want us to pray regularly for orphans around the world. We talk about orphan care and different ministries in our town, and, and we support ministries uh, through our church, through giving and things like that. We talk about it a lot. I want us to continue doing that, continue um, having a, the adoption seminar that we had, uh, things like that, being involved as a church so that we're praying regularly for orphans all over the world, and even those in our midst. Third, let's take bold risks with our lives for the sake of orphans. Now, I don't know what this means for you. Maybe it means that God is calling you and your spouse to adopt children. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe it means that God is calling you and your spouse to foster children in our community. Maybe it means that God is calling you to get a job and make as much money as you possibly can so that you can spend it in a hundred different ways to care for orphans. Maybe it means that God is calling you to help someone else adopt. And Kelly and I have been so blessed by many of you in so many ways over the years. Many of you have watched our kids so we can have date nights or go to training or go to court. You've helped us out financially and brought meals for us. And you've done that to other families as well. There's such a great culture of service in our church, especially when it comes to children and caring for families. And now there are other families in our church in need of the same things. I think of the Sparrows, just how it got their first placement. I think of uh, Stephen and Kelsey and the, the joy that they, are, they get to have with little Haley. And the many other families that are involved in foster care, the Rosses, the, the Smiths with little Ephraim, just so many families involved in the care of orphans. But honestly, this is something that we, a way that we can serve any family with children. I mean, mom and, moms and dads need date nights. Moms and dads needs me, need meals brought sometimes. Maybe it means that God is calling you to start a more formal ministry that reaches out to orphans or single mothers or pregnant teens. But honestly, one of the most amazing ways that we've seen the gospel visible in this church is simply by the love that our foster children have received from the church. Again, this isn't unique to our experience with our foster kids. There really is a culture here that values and treasures children, and that's a blessing to see. There are so many people who faithfully serve in our children's ministry, in our community groups, and all of our children have regular contact with godly men and women who spend time with them, who talk with them about God, who teach them things, and who just show care and concern for them. And the foster children that we have had in our home have probably lived most of their lives without experiencing that kind of love from anyone. So thank you for so faithfully living out the gospel in those ways. This is just some very practical Ordinary ways 
to be involved in orphan care right here in our church, to serve faithfully in our children's ministry, in your community groups, just to get involved in these kids' lives. Whatever the case may be, whatever God is calling you to, please step out in faith. Let's take bold risks for the sake of the gospel and to make the gospel visible in the lives of the fatherless. Let's commit to caring for children the way our Heavenly Father cares for us. Because since we have a Heavenly Father who cares for us, we are called to care for the fatherless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful blessing it is to be adopted into your family. Lord, we do not deserve it. We thank you for the fatherly care of Christ who, um, even though he is not with us in body right now, Lord, we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us. We have his presence here in each one of us, in our church, and Lord, we thank you for that. And God, I pray that we would understand our helpless condition apart from Christ, the glorious gift that we have been given in Christ, and that would motivate and move us, Lord, to sacrifice on behalf of children in our community and around the world. Lord, help us to be faithful, help us to be obedient to what you are calling us to do, whatever that might be. Lord, I I don't think that everyone um, is called to adopt or to do foster care, but Lord, whatever you might call us to do, I pray that we would do it with love and with excitement and uh, perseverance. Father, we thank you for your word and the way that it changes us and reminds us of the most important things. In Jesus' name, amen.